Please listen carefully. Welcome onto the podcast, Mike. I appreciate you coming on. Our local paleontologist, that's what you do, right? Yeah, I guess in a sort. Yes. How have you been since? Uh, so Mike is someone that I met in Vegas at the sports business classroom, uh, along with our previous guests. Uh, Mike, how you been since Vegas? What you been up to? You know, not much. Just kind of starting in here on the Raptors preseason stuff. We kind of have begun preseason coverage. You know, I honestly haven't done a preseason pod yet. So kind of excited to talk about the Raptors in a little bit more of a long form discussion than, you know, obviously the written pieces are not as much back and forth. So excited to talk about Raptors kind of in a discussion format. Obviously, so much has changed since the last postseason. Yeah, <laughs> I think you could certainly say that. That's where I want to start is with last season. So obviously going into last season, a lot of things have changed around. Uh, Messiah Jiri made the trade for Kawhi Leonard, trading away franchise icon DeMar DeRozan. Uh, sorry, franchise icon Jakob Pertl in that trade. So a, a huge shakeup in Toronto, though. How, how does it feel this offseason as compared to last offseason? And maybe what were your expectations going into last season? Going into last season, after the Kawhi Leonard trade happened, the fault around the Raptors kind of was, okay, now this gives us our chance to make the NBA Finals. And once you get to the NBA Finals, anything can happen. Injuries happen. Obviously, you don't know what's going to happen on the other side of the bracket. And that's kind of exactly how it played out. The Raptors won the Eastern Conference playoffs, uh, obviously, with that four-game comeback over the Milwaukee Bucks. I think it's no secret that the Raptors got some luck there with Kevin Durant's injury and Klay Thompson's injury in the NBA Finals. But to me, the plan was always, let's make the Finals, see what happens once you get into a one-game or one-series sample size. It really is kind of a toss-up. You know, obviously, favorite teams have an advantage and all things like that. But things can happen in a one-series sample that can't otherwise happen. So that's kind of what the goal was going into next, last season. And obviously, in terms of play on the actual court, they pretty much accomplished that as perfectly as you could. Yeah, yeah, I would say that is a very fair way to look at it. I mean, it's easy to forget in retrospect, but they were four bounces away from possibly losing that uh, Philly series in the Eastern Conference semifinals. And it's easy to say, oh, they got injury luck. Everyone gets injury luck. Injuries happen. It's sports. You got to plan your best around it. I mean, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to convince me that Kawhi Leonard was perfectly healthy during that playoff run. Obviously, OG Ananobi is a guy that had injury concerns all throughout last year. So, so obviously, yes, there were injuries, but there's no, there's no way you can discredit what the Raptors did last season. It was, it was truly an incredible season. In what ways did the Raptors last season meet your expectations, or in, in what ways did they exceed? Obviously, I think you'd start with Pascal Siakam, but any other places you saw them really exceed your expectations? Yeah, I, obviously the one is Pascal, and that's the guy who really took this team from a fringe contender into the NBA champions that they were. The guy went from a low usage below fit, or uh, kind of in the bottom half percentile of usage on a bench unit to being the second best player on the Raptors last season. So obviously you saw that. I think another thing you saw was the resurgence of Serge Ibaka. Nick Nurse converted him to a full-time center pretty much. There were some times during the playoffs when he played a little bit of power forward next to Gasol in the Philly series. 
just because the Raptors were getting no production out of their bench and they really needed that. But to me, it was Serge Ibaka was the other guy that never gets talked about. He was a Raptors third leading scorer last season. He was second on the team in shot attempts. The switch from power forward to center made sense in a lot of ways. And if you look at where the NBA was going, it was no surprise that they did that. But changing from Dwayne Casey to Nick Nurse allowed Serge to move to his more natural position of center. And I really think that revitalized his career. And it will be interesting to see next season with Marc Gasol on the roster full-time now, if they kind of try to move back to splitting him at power forward and center, or if they're going to kind of keep him in a center-only role. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you brought up Serge because I, I that's another thing. I mean, I had even forgotten a little bit just how, I think the word you used was resurgence, and I think that's exactly the right word. He really stepped back into the role that he used to fill in terms of production, but I, I think it was a much different game than we're used to. Some nights, he was just deadly from the mid-range. It was really impressive to watch. So yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Serge. I think we can go ahead and transition now into the guy you mentioned, Pascal Siakam. Had one of the most impressive transitions from his second to third year. Was he a junior or senior coming out of college? He was a older sophomore. Uh, okay, that's what it was. But he was already yeah, from, yeah. He's from Cameroon, so I think the age as far as he wasn't a typical high schooler coming into college. He's basically, I believe he's age 25 now. So he was an older sophomore than most, uh, obviously picked up basketball late, has a really untraditional path to the NBA. And as you said, is age 25 now, which is sort of why I wanted to mention that, but is only his third year in the NBA. And as you mentioned, picked up basketball pretty late, which given the sort of skill and not just skill development, but the leaps and bounds he took with his skill development, I think it's very fair to say he's got more room to grow. And to some extent, I think this also just harkens back to the idea that you don't have to be 19 years old to get better. 24, 25 year olds get better all the time. That's in fact probably an easier age to get better in. And sometimes it just happens to be the role you can fill into. What would you say was, uh, what were a couple of things you saw really grow in Pascal Siakam's game uh, as opposed to things that he added in? What were new things you would already notice in his game the past couple of years that he really ramped up? So obviously everyone's going to focus in on the shooting and for good measure when you go from being really a non-impactful shooter at all to shooting 37% last year. And yes, it was 37% largely on corner looks. That still is obviously the biggest addition to his game. And I think you could start to see that a little bit during his sophomore season. He started off horribly cold in his second year, but kind of just shot through it in order, just push through it to provide that threat from the outside. So that's something that he was so confident taking it despite having a really horrific percentage that you saw the inklings of for his third year. The other thing that you saw flashes of is in his second year that really kind of exploded in the third was the ball handling. He was someone his rookie year, he basically was an energy big, kind of a power forward, ran the rim and kind of fed off uh, rebounds and things like that. In the second year, you started to see him handle the ball a little bit on the perimeter, which was weird to see. And you thought, well, maybe, you know, he can be a secondary playmaker. By year three, he's running the pick and roll kind of, they're using uh, inverted 1-4 pick and roll where he's the ball handler and Kyle Lowry is setting screens. So you saw that kind of development from him. It just really opened up everything. So he basically became a post player kind of working down low to someone who can work on the perimeter, both in terms of a jump shot and in terms of handle on the outside. So 
he kind of moved his game from the inside to the outside in the best way possible while still maintaining, obviously, the ability to finish above defenders and things like that at the rim. Yeah, and just to put uh, some numbers to what you were talking about with him hitting corner threes, so he took 68% of his three-point attempts from the corner, but he was able to hit 41% from that corner, so very clearly something that became a significant part of his arsenal. Uh, He was taking 22% of his shots from three-point range, 12 to 15% of his shots coming from the corner, The one thing I want to hit on, you talked about his ball handling ability. We all saw last year that signature spin move that he introduced. What does that, what does that do for his game? What does that unlock? Because at this point, maybe the first couple of times you see it, you're like, oh my God, look at, look at this dude spinning around in the court. He looks like he's going crazy. He's he's like a wheel about to spin off the tire or something. But it's an effective move that he's been able to consistently use to his advantage. What is so special about that move and what makes it, how is Siakam able to use it so effectively? I think the one thing that kind of is overlooked on Pascal is his ability to, even when he doesn't get by opponents or necessarily beat them off the dribble, he's able to finish over top of them. And that spin move is something where it creates just enough room that the shot is still relatively difficult, but he's able to kind of flip it up over top of the defense or get a weird angle on it. He kind of, you know, obviously not in other parts of the game, but he kind of reminds me a way of Antoine Jameson in the way he just has these unusual angles and shots that you think would get blocked, but somehow he's kind of flipping it over one shoulder, flipping it back. And that spin move that he has is one where, Sometimes I don't even think he gets great separation from the opponent, but he gets just enough that he's able to get himself into a difficult contested shot at the rim. And then he's just so good at the rim at finishing those shots. So I think it's something where perhaps the move is, I mean, the move is obviously great, but I think what makes it work so well is his ability to finish in traffic. Yeah, that's true. I think obviously the move is something that sticks out in my mind and probably most people that watch him, but you're right. It is really that ab- uh, ability to finish contested looks at the rim that allows him to really capitalize it. Just a, a, a sort of similar guy in terms of being a uh, a guy with a big body, but with a lot of sort of his offense coming from the perimeter with his ball handling. And obviously it's a little unfair. I don't want to – obviously th- th- there is a comparison to be made between – the the burgeoning development of his skill game and that of Giannis in terms of the yeah. way that they are big guys able to handle on the perimeter and work their way into a contested look, but just have such good finishing ability that that ability to get a tough contested look, which for most players is not that valuable because most people can't finish those looks for a guy like Pascal and a guy like Giannis, it is super valuable because they can get in there and they have just such phenomenal touch. They can finish at a very efficient rate. Yeah, he. it's funny you say Giannis. I almost brought him up as the guy he reminds me the most of. Obviously, a scaled-down version of Giannis. In the way you watch Giannis kind of get to the rim and finish got over guys with these massive dunks and his crazy length and athleticism, Siakam just has to settle for a contested layup because he's not quite the athlete or quite as large as Giannis is. But yeah, he kind of reminds me of a scaled down Giannis in the ability that, well, one, he shoots a little bit better than Giannis does. So that opens things up a little bit more for him in terms of driving to the paint. He doesn't have to face such a hard challenge. 
But yeah, he's a smaller, less athletic version of Giannis, which for Pascal, luckily, a smaller, less athletic version of Giannis still can be very large and very athletic. Right. <laughs> if there's one thing you can say with Giannis, is that there's a little bit of room you can keep scaling down, and he's still probably an effective player. I don't know if six foot Giannis would be that great, but yeah, you can see you've got a little room to work with. So the one, I guess we can go ahead and see Occam's offensive game was the main thing that got him heavy minutes this year. That's the main thing that's drawing attention. That's what's putting him in the most improved uh, race and whatnot. I think a very important thing with Pascal, obviously, is his defense. Last year, Pascal played 91% of his minutes at power forward, 9% of his minutes at center. He's one of these guys that you, you picture as a small ball center, but obviously is playing most of his minutes at the power forward position. He's just a guy you really like in terms of being a switchable athlete, with just such a such a high motor, you know he's going to be able to compete, get through screens. Doesn't matter if Joel Embiid's posting up. It, at the very least, he's going to fight. There's no play in which he's going to give up just because the guy is too quick, too strong, etc. Can you tell me a little bit about just Siakam's overall defensive game, and then maybe anything that he really developed in those center minutes this year? Yeah, um, you know, I was surprised kind of, and I actually looked at that number a little bit ago because I was looking at how much he played small forward, which is none actually. But <laughs> uh, as a center defensively, he maybe doesn't have the rebounding to quite hold up there over long periods of time. Uh, when you look at kind of like the death lineup warriors, they have Draymond obviously is a great rebounder. In terms of just kind of defending the positions, you would be kind of hard pressed to find a guy who can defend a little bit one through five like Siakam can. This is a guy who during the DeMar DeRozan 59 win team season was guarding John Wall during the playoffs. When you talk about guarding one through five, oftentimes the guy can really guard one through four, can guard two through four. Siakam's someone that maybe has trouble with the bulkier centers like Embiid or Nikola Jokic, but versus league average centers and worse, certainly against even top end point guards. I think he does a pretty excellent job defensively. We saw this year he was guarding Russell Westbrook at times in terms of kind of overall athletes. He's the best one the Raptors have. So I think that his defensive potential just speaks to his combination of size and speed and obviously the ability to kind of move on the perimeter, unlike many people who can at six foot nine. Yeah. I, so I'm glad you touched on that because I think it's really important to highlight. So when I described it, I, I think I didn't give him enough credit. It's not that Siakam can just switch onto a point guard or switch onto a center for a play. They are guarding John Wall with him. They are guarding Russell Westbrook with him. Like he's a guy you take and put on the other team's best player. And it doesn't matter who the best player is. He's probably right. the best defender, which is incredible. Go ahead. Sorry. Right. No, it's uh, with Kyle. Obviously, the Raptors have a little bit of limitations in their point guard. Kyle's a great team defender and kind of knowing his job of rotating in the proper times. But he's not a great on ball guy anymore. And Pascal last year, I think, was the team's probably best guard defender outside of Danny Green. So that's a great point. He's just his ability to kind of guard one through five more aptly one through four is really unprecedented compared to other big men kind of at the power forward position. Yeah, I agree. I, I think when you talk about defensive versatility, it's usually just how can he hold up at the position? You know, how can he, can he feasibly guard average players? It's so different with Siakam when you have his just incredible ability to switch on guys of any size not just switch on them, 
to, to smother them at times. It, it's truly incredible. I think we've pretty much covered Siakam. Is there anything else you want to talk about with him before we move on? I just think one thing to watch for this upcoming year is it will be interesting to see how he kind of ramps up his usage because the past three years he's increased his usage while increasing his efficiency. Next year, the Raptors are losing a great amount of shots from Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green, not as much, but still a decent amount of kind of perimeter scoring and ability. So it will be interesting to see if Pascal is able to once again increase that usage without decreasing in efficiency. And it's something that I think will really kind of control the Raptors season because with Kyle Lowry, Marcus Gasol, Serge Ibaka, they're all great players. There's not a ton of shot creation among that group. So it really is going to have to come down to Pascal Siakam and how he can create as a scorer. Yeah, and I'm glad you did say that because it, it is really important to note too. Last year, he was not the primary option. Kawhi Leonard was the primary option. And even before that, obviously, you had DeMar DeRozan there creating the vast majority of the shots. So it will be a lot different for him to be the main guy that your opponent is scheming against. Obviously, not as important in the regular season. But once you get to the playoffs... How well does Siakam fare as a number one option? It's certainly interesting to note. I, I, I don't. I, I think you'd be. I doubt even someone like you is going to say that Pascal Siakam's best role is that of a number one option. But I think it's certainly worth seeing what he can do in that option, knowing that eventually, hopefully, you can scale him back to either a number two, possibly a number three option. Yeah, I, I definitely don't think that his long-term best fit is as the number one guy. I think he's more of a Robin than a Batman because that allows him, one, not only to be a secondary playmaker and things like that, but also allows him to focus a little bit more defensively as we discussed at length how great he is on that side of the ball. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we can go ahead and move on now to, I think, OG Ananobi would be the next guy to hit. I guess this will be his third year in the league, was the 23rd pick in the 2017 draft, uh, 22 years old. Actually, out of London, I was not aware of that. I uh, went to high school in Missouri, but apparently was born in the UK. Maybe Britain will finally have that star player on their uh, FIBA team that they haven't had since Lil Dang. <laughs> but so OG is a guy... I, I think Raptors fans have been really excited about him. Um, it was a disappointing year last year. There were some injury concerns, and he also had some personal time. Can you tell me a little bit about your impression of OG when he was first drafted and then how that impression has been shaped by the last two years? Yeah, I, I think, you know, after his freshman – or I'm sorry, rookie season, he, he came out and he was the – he looked like – the perfect example of a three and D wing. He was really, and it's going to sound funny seeing as the fact that got swept, but he was pretty impressive against LeBron during that second round of the playoffs last year. And on, as far as small forwards, he kind of fit the perfect role for what the Raptors needed as far as he could take the best defensive option. And he shot a pretty impressive from a pretty impressive percentage from the perimeter, uh, considering that it really wasn't a strong suit coming into the year. He also was coming back from an injury his freshman year, or his rookie year, sorry. It really wasn't expected for him to play that much. And when he played all 82, or played the beginning of the season, it was a bit of a surprise. So he really surprised everyone in his freshman rookie year. And then the second year, things just, he kind of had the year from hell. His father passed away at the start of the preseason. It's kind of forgotten now, and it seems crazy to say, but 
it was really a competition for that power forward spot, whether it was going to be OG Ananobi or Pascal Siakam. Siakam or OG's father passes away. Obviously, Siakam grabs a job and then runs with it and doesn't look back. OG, as great as he is, is kind of uh, he's going to feed off other shot creation. And he's a pretty good cutter along the baseline. Obviously, he can shoot relatively well from the perimeter and is going to make his impact defensively. I think it will be interesting to see him move back into the starting role, presumably this year, and how that affects his game. I, I really think that I'm higher on Ananobi than most, where moving into the starting role will really help him out. Yeah, and just I want to put a number. So uh, his his rookie year had a 12.4 usage, and last year a 15.5 usage. So as you said, a guy that uh, is pretty reliant on others to create his offense. Something I noticed, though, so it looks like he played 76% of his minutes his rookie year at small forward. And then obviously last year, the addition of Kawhi Leonard pushes him to play 75% of his minutes at power forward. Instead, he could have... So do you think that was a problem for him? And do you think he will look better being able to transition back into the small forward role next year? Yeah. You know, it was him and CJ Miles. So to say who is a power forward, who is a small forward, I think is a little bit six, one half dozen, the other. I don't know if necessarily OG was playing that much different of a role last year in terms of positioning. Yeah. It was something where I don't think the Raptors were putting OG in his best position to uh, best position to succeed just because when you're a really good team, sometimes players have to make sacrifices. And for OG, that was playing up a position. I think offensively, he's probably best as a four where he can be a low usage guy who spreads the floor and doesn't do much. But defensively as a three, which is kind of the opposite of what you want. You want guys to be able to defend larger than their position and play a little bit more perimeter based on offense. So, you know, at this point in time, I think he's still a three. And he's someone that you're going to have to pair with a power forward who is either one tremendously skilled around the basket or two is more of a option like Pascal Siakam. So I think he's still a small forward at this point in time with the ability to shift down to power forward. Uh, last year, I think it was just more a circumstance of the way the roster shook up. And again, when you're a good team, you have to ask players to kind of play out of position or do things that maybe they're not comfortable with for the betterment of the team. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, when you're a contending team, it's just really tough to put the time into player development that a guy like OG Ananobi would need. And I think it is definitely, yeah, you're right to note that playing with CJ Miles, it's kind of whatever. The, the positional difference there is not much. But I, I do want to say with a guy like OG, the fact that he has the offense of a four and the defense of a three, that's not nearly as problematic as having for say the offense of a five and the defense of a four because the, having defense at the small forward position is probably the scarcest commodity in the NBA I might say outside of you know just elite level shot creation being able to defend the three at the high level might be the or at least the most in-demand um, commodity in the NBA so it is certainly very intriguing to see OG Ananobi have that skill set. And I think that's probably the main reason why guys like you were so excited about him. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, that's a great point on the four versus five thing, because you're right. It's, it's harder to find wing forwards than maybe I was giving it credit to. And the fact that he can defend threes is extremely valuable. It's not like he's either one, like you said, a center or a center who has a defensive game of the power forward. It's at least a usable skill set as a small forward who can defend kind of those 
LeBron, uh, Kawhi Leonard, Pe- Paul George types, where you see so much of the top scoring talent in the NBA. I think that's a great point that you had that that skill set of not being able to necessarily defend force isn't great, but it's much more understandable than the other way around or if it was shift down a position. Yeah, and I obviously it's still important to note that it is still something you'll have to work around. It's not as good as having the offense and defense of a three, but mm-hmm. there's certainly some credit to be given there. I think that pretty much covers it with him. You want to go ahead and move on now to Fred Van Vliet, or did you have anything else to say with him? No, I, I'm ready to talk about Steady Freddy. Too complex. Let's do it then. Fred Van Vliet, uh, undrafted guy. I guess this this will be his fourth year in the league. So his first year was 16-17. Uh, came out as a senior out of Wichita State, where he, alongside Ron Baker, had a very successful college career. I believe they, I think they made the tournament all four years. Had a couple of good runs. Obviously, Van Vliet had an explosion into the limelight this year with his performance in the playoffs, but he was a guy that I I was already familiar with. And I think a lot of hardcore NBA fans were already familiar with dating back to the 17, 18 season, if not even a little bit earlier, a guy that provided a lot in the playoffs, but do you want to talk about how he's evolved the last couple of years? And then actually, can you talk a little bit about, I think it was he Siakam on that 905 title squad though. Do you want to talk a little bit about that 905 title squad and how it's turned into the Raptors young core of the future? Yeah. The Raptors have had maybe the most successful G league franchise there is both in terms of one, they've won a lot and they've been in the playoffs. I believe the past three seasons have won a title uh, maybe two years ago. Um, But when you talk about players on the Raptors who have played for the 905, I get a little bit mixed up between the years of who went down there, but you had Jakob Pertl, Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet, Norman Powell, DeLon Wright have all spent time during the 905. And you look at, obviously some of those guys got traded and won the Kawhi Leonard deal and two, the Marcus Gasol deal, but that just speaks to the value that they created. And the Raptors have done an excellent job kind of using the 905 and using it on a little bit older players when you talk about Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet, who came into the NBA as a senior. So the Raptors aren't afraid to, one, not only use their 905, but two, use it on guys that are 24, 25 years old. Chris Boucher last year is one of the oldest players in the G League, ended up winning G League MVP and Defensive Player of the Year, and we'll talk about him later. But, yeah, it's that 905 team was incredible, and kind of the way the Raptors are using it I think is – the perfect way that an NBA team should as far as one, not only focusing on the future because obviously they've been winning now, but mostly using it as a way to develop young talent and kind of developing prospects. Yeah. I I think it's fair to say they've had the most success out of any other team with their G league program. They also had Jerry Stackhouse was a coach there. He's since moved on. Is that right? I know he was at the very least under consideration for some head coaching jobs. He, he's now an assistant for, I believe, the Memphis Grizzlies, Jamahala Marshall, as the new 905 coach. And he's come in and they switched from a slow-minded defensive group. They were under Stackhouse. I believe they're the slowest-paced team in the league to let, to last year being kind of a more fast-paced team. Huh. That's interesting. It certainly makes sense um, for, for a G League team serving under Nick Nurse's squad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Actually, wasn't Nick Nurse a the G League coach for – a little bit of time or am I misremembering that? 
No, no, you're correct. He was a G League coach for the Iowa Energy and actually won a G League title against the Rio Grande Vipers back in maybe 2013, I believe. Uh, kind of back when the G League was, a, well, one, it was the D League, and two, was a little bit less utilized and a little bit rougher around the edges. The 905 is playing kind of a faster style now. It makes sense when you talk about switching from Casey to Nurse, although maybe the Raptors didn't run as much as we expected to last season, kind of just due to personnel. But I think when you talk about coaching philosophy, it made a lot of sense that the 905 would kind of reflect what the Raptors are doing. Yeah, especially, I mean, if, you, if you've had this level, of, uh, this level of success, obviously you have to be planning for these players on the G League squad to get opportunities with the, uh, with the main group. Well, let's go ahead and get back into Fred Van Vliet. What exactly was it in the playoffs that made him so valuable? Uh, once he finally got over that, I don't know if you want to call it a slump, just a rough start, what was it that caused him to be such a focus in, I mean, in everyone's mind, really, what was it that just really made him pop? <laughs> no, uh, sorry, I ignored the Fred Van Vliet part, but I think Slump <laughs> is, if anything, an understatement. He was completely terrible in really the beginning two rounds as well as the beginning of the Milwaukee Bucks series. It was an active discussion in our Raptors Rapture ch- uh, Slack whether he should be pulled completely from the rotation for Jeremy Lin, who didn't play during the entire postseason. I was someone who kind of consistently believed in Fred, not really because I believed in Fred, but because I didn't believe in the other options. So <laughs> he basically, what I think what happened is one, he really struggled with the size of Philadelphia and how big they were. Fred's an undersized player and he had a, a lot of problems finishing at the rim and, and quite frankly, just being cold shooting from the perimeter. First, when it came to Milwaukee, I don't know if a ton changed. He maybe dribbled a little bit less and kind of moved the ball a little bit more. But really, I think what just it came down to is a guy who went from hitting none of his shots to all of a sudden going completely in fuego on the other end of the floor and hitting threes. And you're talking late shot clock shots and crazy finishes at the rim. It just I think that his kind of unsustainable beginning was too cold to expect and kind of how we played at the end was just extreme shot making more than it was a total change in philosophy. Yeah. I mean, if you look at his regular season numbers, he's a guy that shot uh, 38% from three last year on 4.6 attempts during the regular season. So that's his game. He's always been a shooter um, and always been a pretty effective shooter. So I think you're right that a lot of it was just recovering from a clear down spell and transitioning straight into the absolute peak. I think it was just seeing that side by side in such a quick, sharp transition was what really caught everyone's eye. But I I also want to talk about, so Fred was obviously super valuable on the offensive end. And I I will want to talk a little bit more about his offense, but I think in the finals, especially it was really his defense cemented him as one of the most valuable players on the Raptors. Just the way he was able to fight over every screen and just stick right on Curry. Going to that box and one allowed him the freedom to disregard anything else and just focus on Curry. But the way he was able to do it, I don't know if there's that many players in the league that can guard Curry to that level, even if the defense is schemed around them. Yeah, the, you know, the box and one got a lot of kind of talk just because it was a box one and the NBA finals and you don't ever see something like that. It was really Fred's consistent defense throughout the time. They didn't really run box and one that large a percentage of the time against Steph Curry. It was really only when Clay was out, which was a very small portion of the game 
the guy's just a goddamn bulldog in the fact that he gets over every single screen. He fights on everything. He would be the guy that if you imagine playing pickup that you would hate playing against every single time because he just doesn't relent for a second. And he overcomes kind of lesser tangible skills just by sheer effort and being annoying. And it sounds kind of cliche and all these things, but it really is just a testament to how hard he plays and kind of the style that he plays. He's also incredibly strong and kind of has a knack for getting over screens and things like that. Has kind of learned from the Kyle Lowry school of how to get away with fouls that aren't really fouls, but actually might be fouls. He did a great job on Curry when you look at the on-off numbers of when, when Fred Van Vliet was on the floor and when he was off. It's really insane to look at. Yeah, so the one way I sort of think of it, um, I, I've heard a couple of people in the draft community compare guys this year, uh, John Conchar and my boy Matt Mooney. They've compared them to boxers. I think Fred Van Vliet would be an incredible boxer. I mean, not only in terms of the physical damage he would give out, but just the physical toll it takes to be chasing Curry, to be running into every screen and battling through it. It is such a level of physical damage you have to take, and Fred just took it. Yeah, yeah, he, you know, he's the the cornerback to use another sports analogy. He's the cornerback that's extremely physical at the line of scrimmage, and maybe is only five foot ten, but really gets into bodies and presses against the line, and just makes that beginning part so difficult for you to kind of get going and get in a rhythm. And it's really hard to get in a rhythm when you're Steph Curry, when you have a guy who's one locking into you from 50 feet away, and two, every time you're off ball is just harassing you and getting just inside of your shirt. Yeah, I, I love that comparison of the cornerback that's all up in the receiver's jersey, pressing them like right on the line of scrimmage. Let's let's go back and just talk a little bit more about his offense. Can you tell me maybe about the dynamic between Van Vliet and Lowry when both are on the floor? Yeah, I, it's something that I think is probably Raptors Twitter's biggest gripe with Nurse is the fact that Fred Van Vliet runs the offense so much when he's such a skilled off-ball player. I'm maybe a little bit less against it than most of the guys. I think Fred's a little bit more skilled in kind of the pick-and-roll game and things, and people want to give him credit for it. But it's an interesting kind of back and forth between the two because they both are sized point guards and are very good passers. However, they both are such good shooters and are good movers off the ball that I think that they're able to coexist just due to the fact that offensively, I really don't mind if Fred Van Vliet is playing the two. I really don't mind if Kyle Lowry is playing the two. Yes, they're great passers. Yes, you want to see the ball in their hands to some extent. But because they're such good shooters and because they're good off the ball, I think that they kind of work so well in the fact that they can both be 1.5s while on the floor. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, I think you pretty much covered it. I, yeah, I, I don't actually have anything else to add on that. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk, touch on before Fred Van Vliet, before we run through the rest of the guys on the list? Yeah, I, the other thing with him is something where, you know, they have this theory that in work that you're promoted until the point where you're incompetent and that people are promoted to managers that are great salesmen and maybe they should just be salesmen. I think Fred Van Vliet is really excelling at the role of being one of the best backup point guards in the league. To me, it will be interesting, and I don't necessarily think he's a starter if you want to have a really good team. I think that Fred is best used as a reserve guard where you can play both you know, kind of next to a point guard or play run the second unit. So to me, he's someone who is the best of a second unit, but I don't know if he needs to be promoted to starter 
in order to kind of thrive in his best NBA environment. Yeah, I think that I, so I think that fits a lot with my evaluation of him as well. I think his best fit is probably so I think Van Vliet, first of all, is wasted if he's not on a contending playoff team. So I, I, I wouldn't want him to go be a starter on some trash team like the Hornets. I, I don't want him to go the Terry Rozier route. That doesn't make any sense to me. You don't think the Hornets will be good next year? You know, um, <laughs> being in South Carolina, I'm going to try not to trash Charlotte too much because I want, like, a job or something. So, <laughs> so, like, MJ, if you're out there, like, your team is sick, you know? Like, uh, Nick Batum, Bismack Biombo, let's do this. Oh, God. Um, no, I, I'm not a huge Charlotte fan. But, um I guess what I did want to say, though, is Van Vliet, yeah, I think you're right. His best role is probably as that third guard. I mean, he's probably your sixth man, um, your first guy off the bench. I I think it's reasonable to put him in at 25 to 28 minutes a game, but I do agree I would be a little dubious as to whether he'd have the same level of success if he was a starter game in, game out. Yeah, they don't have similar games, but a a guy I would compare him to is – Lou Will, where if Lou Will is a starter, I don't know if he's the player that we all love. He's more of a defensive sieve and kind of a ball stopper and all these things. But you put him on the second unit and all of a sudden he becomes a fringe all-star guy. So I think Fred's kind of similar in that regard, even if their game styles aren't necessarily the same. Yeah, former sixth man of the year on the Raptors, right? Lou Will. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so we can go ahead and move in now to – those are the three main guys on the Raptors core, I would say. The the last guy, or I guess there's two more guys, but the last guy that played significant minutes with the Raptors last year that was a retention rather than an addition would be Norm Powell. The 46th overall pick out of the 2015 draft had a really, I'll, I'll let you explain it, but I think he had a pretty surprisingly good first couple of years in the league. Got that big deal in the after the 16-17 season, or it may have been an extension, and has struggled to find his place in the rotation the last couple of years as the team has had great levels of, of success. Obviously, first with the 59-win team, and then last year with the title team. Can you tell me a little bit about how Norm Powell exploded into the player that he was before we talk about how he's been the last couple of years. Yeah. So actually he was a part of the consistently part of the rotation last year and during the postseason fell out during a couple games, but really was the team's eighth consistent rotation player. Cause they only played eight during the meaningful parts of the postseason. So last year was actually a, an up year for him in terms of overall production, mostly because his three point shot was falling during his first couple of years. It's just Fred's just been up and down really consistently throughout. And during the third season, it was kind of the culmination of that, where he was totally out of the rotation and kind of fell out of favor with coach Dwayne Casey, even during the early parts of his career, you'd never got a stable production from Fred or from Norman Powell. He was really up and down during his one playoff series. He had uh, a really breakout campaign against uh, the Milwaukee Bucks. But in terms of overall production, he's been flittering in and out of the rotation. And you don't really know what you are to expect from him from one week to the next. He's also had a few kind of minor injuries and things like that, which have caused him to miss some time. So Norman Paul is kind of the player, perhaps in terms of production, the rapper, Raptors don't know what they're going to get next year. Yeah, so I think one thing that you said that's really important is that three-point shot. So uh, last year, hit 
only uh, one three a game, 1.13s, but hit 40% of them, as opposed to the year before, the 17-18 season, you said he was falling out of the rotation. That was 0.83s, which ends up being 28.5%. I think that does sort of illustrate that the sample size isn't that great, although it's not like he's playing many minutes. If anything, it just demonstrates the inconsistency there, although obviously that's only a difference of like 15 misses. I think the biggest thing with Norm Powell is, at least in the general perception, that I, I'm not sure if it was a new contract or I believe it was an extension. It's the Josh Richardson rule, right? Uh, Norm Powell got – so he's got – it must have been an extension. So he's got – Yeah, it was an extension. It was yeah, a four-year extension. So I believe he has two years remaining. So. Yeah, yeah, two years remaining at about $10 million each. At the time, though, that seemed perfectly reasonable. I think when you see a guy his second year in the league that was a second-round pick and is now putting up 8.4 points a game, only 32% shooting from three, but he's only playing 18 minutes a game, I think it's fair to expect him to keep rising. And, and it's, it's, So he's always been a good free-throw shooter, shooting 80% from the line. Uh, which is always a strong indicator of three-point success. So at the time, that extension seemed perfectly reasonable. It's just that it has not turned out quite as well as the Raptors may have hoped. And the Raptors' contention window has become a lot more immediate the last couple of years. Yeah, he's someone that, you know, he had a pretty good season last year as far as just kind of overall production he's pretty efficient he's always kind of been a poor decision maker but I thought he did you know exactly what the Raptors kind of needed out of him last year he's a pretty average defender he can lock into guys at times as a good athlete but is kind of flaky uh defensive IQ and isn't really a health defender and things like that uh, I'm pretty sure the advanced numbers are somewhat against him in terms of overall defense but yeah it's just tough to get a read on norm and i think next year will be a kind of an eye-opener in terms of what he can provide the raptors i would say that fred will be the team six man but they'll definitely need some shot creation out of norman powell in the second unit uh whenever pascal siakam's off the floor so he's someone that if you told me that he was going to be a bargain on his next last two years of his contract i wouldn't necessarily be surprised seeing as 10 million really isn't that much. It's kind of a seventh man in today's NBA. At the same time, he's probably a slight negative as far as contract value at this point. So yeah, he's someone that will be another one who kind of has an expanded role this season and we'll get to see what he is as a player. Obviously he's kind of peaked out. I believe he's age 26 season. So yeah, I was about to mention age 26. Obviously with Norm though, we've already seen that the skill is there. It's much more shoring up that consistency so that's not as much something you're worried about with the age. You just got to hope. I mean, 26, 27, that is the age you're hoping that a guy will just get it in terms of being an inconsistent role player. So I certainly, uh, if I was a Raptors fan, I would have, I would be holding out hope for Norm Powell to put it together and yeah, be that seventh man shot creator that's putting up good numbers and is able to look good on a bench unit. Um, I think we've pretty much covered it with Norm Powell. We can go ahead and touch on Chris Boucher before we get to the uh, new additions. Chris Boucher, as you said, the G League MVP last year on the 905. He is 26 years old already, uh, will be 27 in January. Obviously, having not played in the NBA yet, 
is a guy uh, – sorry, having not played significant time in the NBA yet is a guy that is still more of a mystery in most people's eyes. So do you want to maybe talk a little bit just about Chris Boucher's game in a vacuum and then what you see him providing to the Raptors in the long term? He's someone who picked up basketball – later in life as well. And if you know anything about Masai Ujiri, that's just his type of players is guys who picked up basketball. I believe he was 17 when uh, he started playing. I could be wrong about that, but I know it was in his teenage years. He's not on exactly the typical NBA aging curve. Obviously your skill set develops differently when you don't pick up a basketball until you already have pimples on your face. So a guy who averaged 4.1 blocks per game last season in the G League, which is just an insane stat, although it was in very limited minutes. According to Cleaning the Glass, he had a block percentage of 7.1% when he was in the NBA, I believe. I mean, those are just insane numbers. He's got great instincts as a rim protector and is really phenomenal down there. The problem is he weighs, he's, you know, six foot 10 and weighs 65 pounds. Gets bulldozed around by bigger guys. And he's not a great rebounder, particularly down there. It will be interesting to see. It was funny when we were at SBC, I talked with Charles Dubois of the 905. And he, we mm-hmm. talked about a little bit, like, is, is Chris Boucher a power forward? Is he a center? I think he's a power forward. I think that there's some belief by fans that now you have to go smaller and things like that and more perimeter based. But in my opinion, he's kind of a power forward until otherwise, until you can expect anything else out of him. He's someone who just needs to kind of hang out on the perimeter defensively because he's so light. Yeah, uh, to add to what you're saying right there, he's a guy that was listed as a 6'10", 200-pound small forward coming out of high school. So, yeah, probably more of a power forward than a center. We can go ahead and move on to the additions the Raptors made this year. First on the list, I put my boy Terrence Davis because I am just a huge Terrence Davis fan, a guy who was a senior out of Ole Miss. I was pretty surprised to see him go undrafted, but after the draft, he had a tweet along the lines of, uh, can't sign a two-way contract. I know I'm better than that. It seemed pretty obvious to those in the draft community that Davis had a chance to get picked up in the 40s or 50s sign a two-way contract. A lot of guys like Jordan Bone did that. There's there's several guys. I, I believe Justin Wright Foreman did it. Most of the guys in the 50s and some of the 40s ended up signing two-way deals. But Davis instead decided to go play Summer League, played one game for the Nuggets, I believe, before being signed by the Raptors. Can you tell me um, maybe sort of when you first heard about it, what you've learned about his game if you expect him to have any chance of getting into the rotation this year, just tell me what you thought, what what your first impressions are about Davis. I guess I'll turn this on you uh, right away and ask from what you saw in college, do you think he has the ability to play any point guard? Um, I, that's a good, I would probably not want to play him there. So I, at least for next season, would I, I, if if he's playing point guard, you got to have him with Lowry or Van Vliet. I would say he. I would not say he could be your primary initiator, though. No. Okay, so I I think that's important to note because right now, when you look at the Raptors rotation, I would agree. By the way, um, obviously not having watched him perhaps as closely as you during college, but seeing him in summer league and seeing a few of kind of I've seen maybe about a half of basketball from college. 
uh, of his game. And I, I don't think he can play point guard. So I think it's pretty much impossible for him to work into the rotation. The Raptors are running pretty deep at shooting guard when you consider Van Vliet's going to play there a lot. Uh, Norman Powell's going to play there a lot. I think Matt Thomas is ahead of him in the rotation. So is Patrick McCall. So that's just, it's a lot of guys that it's going to be hard for him to get in front there. Maybe if you want to try to run him and Patrick McCall together as kind of sharing the point guard duties, but that's pretty rough. When you talk about him, I think that it's going to be a year in the G League, a year to see if that jumper can perhaps get to an NBA level. I know he shot it decently enough in college, but we're going to have to see that become really a primary threat, in my opinion, for him to be an impact player on the team. You know, obviously he's a little bit older, another Masai Ujiri special. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that he'll play next season, but I think that perhaps he's going to spend a decent amount of time in the 905 working on his ball skills and seeing if he can develop as a team's third point guard. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I think for his future, it, it's probably pretty tough to see him becoming a full-time point guard. If, if anything, the one thing I wanted to say is I'd be interested. So Davis is a guy, he's 6'4", but pretty strong, and I believe has maybe a 6'8 wingspan, maybe even a little bit bigger. I, I don't know if this is really Nick Nurse's flavor, but – if he was on a team like the Nuggets or the Trailblazers, I, I wouldn't be shocked to see him get a, a couple like spare minutes at small forward in terms of just being one of those three-guard lineups where he's the ostensive small forward. Can't put him against any real uh, small forward. He, he can't defend any small forwards competently, but he's certainly a guy I think you could sneak a couple of minutes in. Although I do think you're right. He's probably destined for the G League next year, especially given the depth ahead of him on the Raptors. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, Nurse experimented. He did like a weird three-point guard lineup a little bit with DeLon Wright. DeLon's probably got a similar tangible skill set to Terrence Davis, where he's 6'4", pretty long, uh, pretty athletic, but not like a crazy jump-off-your-screen guy. So I, I don't think it's out of the question. I just think in this rookie year, it'll be tough. Perhaps Terrence Davis maybe develops a little bit more as a secondary ball handler, shooting guard. And obviously, you know, with the Raptors, they got a lot of these guys who are maybe fringe rotation players, like guys you'd feel comfortable as your ninth or 10th man. And that will kind of shake out as Davis kind of develops more into the league. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned DeLon Wright. That's a really interesting comparison I hadn't thought of. But yeah, I, I think if you were going to make just the easy overall player comparison, DeLon Wright would be the... Or, or so if you wanted to give Terrence Davis a guy to try to model his career after, I think DeLon Wright is absolutely the guy. Yeah, I, so is there anything else you want to say on him, or we can go ahead and move on to Stanley Johnson? No, I think we move on to Stanley Johnson. Yeah, so Stanley uh, was the number eighth overall pick in the 2015 draft, uh, picked up by the Detroit Pistons. He was actually the third overall recruit in his 2014 high school class. So a guy with just a, a really high pedigree, Never has been able to put the offense together. Uh, has flashed a ton of explosiveness, um, but it's just really has never been able to show any. I'd be hard pressed to name a single NBA skill he's consistently shown. I don't know if that's overstating it. Um, and I'm not sure how familiar with Stanley Johnson's game you are, but is there any insights you have into uh, how he may look? and whether he's a guy that's going to be playing minutes of the three next year. He's actually shown a pretty good uh, playmaking ability early in his career, and accompanied with that is a pretty high turnover percentage. But, you know, just for his position, at least, the assist numbers are pretty good. 
And when you kind of watch him on tape, I think he's got kind of a sneaky basketball IQ that many people don't kind of associate with him because his tangible skill set so get so uh, obvious as far as being an athlete and being a big guy. Um, and then when he's underperforming, I think a lot of people think that it's kind of the basketball IQ. But from what I've seen, his basketball IQ is pretty pretty good, and he's a good playmaker. But as far as scoring the basketball, you're right. You know, he can't finish at the rim. He's a poor mid-range shooter. Can't shoot from three. Uh, I think he will be a part of the rotation next season just based on the fact that defensively this team is really going to kind of lock in. And when you talk about Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, Stanley Johnson, re-signing Patrick McCall to pair with OG Ananobi and Pascal Siakam, the Raptors are going to be playing a lot of you know, maybe they're high-paced, so the score is a little bit higher than it would otherwise indicate. But I think that the Raptors are going to be a team that are pretty good defensively and pretty poor offensively, at least spacing the floor particularly. So Stanley's one where I think he'll play next to OG a lot, and that's kind of similar to the C.J. Miles. Who do you want to call the three? Who do you want to call the four? I don't particularly think it matters, kind of, and it will depend on who Nurse wants to see match up with the bigger guy. but. He's someone who I think, yeah, will be a part of the Raptors rotation, and I think they can count on him defensively. It's just, you know, the Raptors have done a good job of making guys become corner shooters. Can you just stand in the corner for us and make some shots? Yeah, the the more we go down this roster, the more I think you're probably right that Norm Powell is going to have a big impact this year because there's just such a dearth of shot creators uh, late in this roster especially. Uh, yeah, I, I do agree with everything you're saying with Stanley. I, I wasn't really aware of that um, basketball IQ. That is interesting to note, but obviously the big downfall has been the shooting. He's finished with under a 40% field goal percentage every season he's been in the league, which honestly, I, I don't even want to read any more of his stats because they're, they're kind of depressing me now. Um you know what? Let's. So I realized I forgot to put Pat McCaw down um, on the uh, retained guys. Do you want to talk a little bit about Pat McCaw and both how he looked last year and how you project him going into next year? Yeah, I, I'm someone who's just I, I'm really down on Patrick McCaw compared to I think a lot of the Raptors fans and media writers. Uh, I just I. I don't see it as much defensively as everybody else. He's too small to switch, which really limits his value. He can only guard ones and twos. He's really frail uh, defensively. I mean, he gets over screens. He gives great effort. He's a pretty good athlete there and is long. I think he's a decent defender, but I don't see this all otherworldly potential like a lot of guys do. Uh, offensively, I really don't see it at all. The Raptors' advanced numbers, when you look at it, when he was on the floor offensively, he ranked in the bottom percentile as far as on-off numbers compared to his position last year and his field goal attempts for 36 were just disastrously low. He just doesn't shoot the ball, which I think really clogs up the rest of the offense. I was really surprised he got two years, 8 million. Uh, not that, I mean, two year, not that $4 million is a large sum of money, but the fact that he was on a one-year deal, they had to use their mid-level exception. They didn't have bird rights on him, so they had to use their mid-level exception to sign him. It really surprised me that they allocated four million of that mid-level to sign him uh you know maybe I'm wrong on him and some people see defensive upside that I don't but I I'm perhaps lower on McCall than anybody else on the roster comparative to the rest of uh, both the NBA and I think Raptors media 
Yeah. So he was a guy that was sort of languishing on a qualifying offer with the Warriors last year and ended up just lucking his way onto the Raptors roster uh, after I believe maybe he was traded to, or maybe Cleveland gave him like a minimum offer sheet. Uh, he signed up through the season so, and then cut him. Do you yeah. Know- so they, they signed him to a, actually a relatively sizable deal, but it was nine guaranteed. The mm-hmm. Warriors d- uh, neglected to match it because it was a decent sized offer. The tax bill would have been high. Then he was cut by the Cavaliers after like a week of playing and picked up by the Raptors. So you're right. uh, it couldn't have worked out any better for the Raptors as far as adding him last year, but it was really a weird contract situation. No, I, I you know, I'd forgotten about that because there's the whole drama of the Warriors, like asking the lead to look into, yeah. uh, I don't know if they called it tampering or whatever, but yeah, just sort of, it, it did seem like maybe there was some, some garnering of favor, favor from the Cavaliers with Pat McCaw's agent. I'm not sure who that is, but yeah, it seems like maybe they're playing games, but you know, hey, rings don't lie, baby. Rings. Uh, yeah, three rings from McCall, so. <laughs> it's truly incredible how Pat McCall has managed to bum- bungle his way into three straight rings. Good Lord. Yeah, that's that's the one thing I'll, I'll give him credit for. He's got a nose for the gold. Um, Most recent guy sent Shaq, so. Shaq yeah, and Kobe. Hey, was like yeah, don't sleep on the three-peat. Even the Warriors couldn't do it. <laughs> Um, let's go ahead and move on to uh, Rondé Hollis Jefferson, a guy that has spent his first four years in the league with the Brooklyn Nets, was drafted 23rd overall, um, a 6'7", small forward without much of a shooting game, which has pretty much stopped him from – Rondé was a guy that had a lot of excitement his first couple of years in the league. I think he was probably on track to be getting a sizable contract, even up until the 17-18 season. I think you would have been remiss to I, – I think, I think it would have been easy to see him getting double-digit, you know, $10 million, $12 million a year, if not even more, over three or four years. But just as the league has continued to shift further and further away from his skill set, and he had, he had a very disappointing year last year, um, he ended up just taking a deal with the Raptors. Do you know what that deal was? Uh, so it was originally reported as a minimum contract. It appears they had a little bit more room under the minimum and like as kind of a good faith offer bumped him up to one year, 2 million. So uh, just above the minimum. I mean, barely. It, it, it is a little strange to me that Stanley Johnson and uh, Pat McCaw especially got more money than Rondé. He's a guy with a much higher pedigree, or at least has proven a lot more in the league than either of those guys have. Yeah, uh, Stanley Johnson doesn't surprise me as much just due to the ability that he's shown at least some inklings of a jumper. We are like, hey, maybe like there's a rough outline if you get him in the right system. Rondé Alice Jefferson, I mean, I, you know, I broke into a column where I wrote about what are the chances he ever becomes a reasonable jump shooter and can just even make corner jump shots. And I concluded it was around like 10%. And, you know, that's obviously when you just look at the development of guys that are his age, I just don't see it. And his form isn't particularly promising. Um, If I were the Raptors, I would just almost say like, let's scrap the jumper and just work on developing your game and other assets and making you become a tangible player without it. I don't know if they'll go that route, but one interesting thing is they do have two centers who can shoot. So perhaps you can play Rondé as the four who can't, and he can be kind of 
your more inside guy or working in the short corner slash dunker spot. So, yeah, he's someone that I would almost be tempted to scrap it and say, fuck the jump shot completely and just kind of work on the other aspects of this game because there is a lot to like, I think, not only from a defensive aspect, but from offensively, I like a lot of his game that isn't jumper related. That So that actually makes a lot of sense, and I do like that. I think the problem with Rondé is not that he's lacking in skill. It's, it's not that he hasn't been able to produce. It's just that he has a game that you have to build your team around to some extent, and he's just not good enough to do that. But if you already have the environment in which you can put him in, uh, if you can surround him with the right teammates, there's no reason not to do that. So, yeah, I, I do really like your idea of playing him at the four beside Gasol or Ibaka. What, I guess, so between Stanley Johnson, Pat McCaw, and Rondé, who do you see, I'm not going to say play the most minutes, who do you think provides the most value or and or looks the most intriguing as a prospect after next season? I'm going to go Johnson, Jefferson, McCall. Uh, McCall, again, is he can't play small forward as much, at least. In my eyes, he can't really play small forward due to his frame. So I, it's going to be harder for him to get consistent minutes, seeing as Norm Powell, Fred Van Vliet are going to take a lot of the two-guard minutes, and then obviously have Matt Thompson, who you want to work in as well. Uh, so I think the minutes are more to be had at the forward positions. And I think Stanley Johnson someone that, you know, as we talked about with Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, that the floor is going to be more space through the Raptors' big men. And uh, I think that he's someone that I, there's a chance – that you could see, you know, maybe the lowest floors on Rondé Hollis Jefferson, but certainly the highest ceilings on Stanley Johnson, where there's a chance you could see after one year be like, oh, this guy just kind of needed some more time. And obviously he'll never be, or I shouldn't say never, but almost certainly won't be worth a pick. But I think that the chances of you seeing a guy who's a rotation player out of Stanley Johnson are the highest, even if that's a little bit of a lotto ticket in itself. Yeah, no, I think that's perfectly reasonable. And it's worth mentioning Stanley Johnson is 23 years old. Uh, I think Rondé is maybe 24. I'm not, not sure about McCaw. He's either 24 or 25. Certainly, yeah, I mean, Stanley came into the league as a freshman. Sorry, as a, as a rookie. Yeah, I, I, I think that was a good answer. I don't need to talk much more on it. Let's go ahead and talk about the last guy, though, that was a quote-unquote major addition. Raptors legend, it seems, Matt Thomas. Uh, signed out of the ACB last, where he's played the last two years, has shot a combined 47% over the last two years, um, and that was on 4.9 attempts. So this is a guy that comes in with a pedigree as an absolute sniper. I think you've already mentioned him a couple of times in terms of where you see him um, in the rotation next year, but do you want to talk a little bit more about how he fits into the team next year and – Yeah, just in general, what you expect from Matt Thomas. He's a guy that the Raptors kind of went all in on long athletic bodies who can't shoot and maybe we can work on the jumpers. And Matt Thomas was the counter to that. They're like, hey, at least we can put this guy on the floor. He might be a bit of a sieve defensively. He's only 6'5 with a similar size wingspan. Isn't the greatest athlete, but this guy can just absolutely shoot the lights out. He's really good. I think one of the things I was surprised watching kind of some film of him from Europe is he's he's a little bit better with the ball than I think you would otherwise give him credit for. Now, obviously, that translates differently from the NBA or from the European to the NBA level. 
But this is a guy who on open jump shots last year had an effective field goal percentage of 99%. So he's absolutely insane as a shooter. I think that he's going to bring that ability from day one. Uh, And I don't think he'll be necessarily a huge part of the rotation, maybe 15 to 20 minutes, but expect him to try to get shots up while out there and, you know, just compete and survive defensively. I think he should be good enough to survive out there, but obviously that's something that you won't really see until we get to see him face NBA caliber athletes on a daily basis. Yeah, no, I think that's all reasonable. Um, I don't have much to say on him. Is are what, so actually just go ahead and run. We'll run through the fringe guys, and you can just tell me. I'll say the name. Tell me if you expect them to even make the roster, uh, and, and if so, or just if if they intrigue you at all, just give me your opinion on them. If you don't have much of an opinion, you just pass through them. So first guy, Devin Robinson. Yeah, Devin Robinson, another athlete guy. Sick, I can jump out of the gym. Don't expect him. He has a non-guarantee in year one. I think there's a chance he makes a roster, but probably not. Uh, maybe if he's willing to restructure as a two-way, he has a chance, but probably doesn't make the team. Okay. Uh, campaign? Campaign is a guy that I am not a fan of. Uh, there's a lot of kind of just scouting about his skill set and when you look at the advanced numbers it's not any better he's not really a great passer I don't you know I don't know he's a guy that you talked about Stanley Johnson I don't know what he does well offensively (coughs) and I'm not entirely sure he's a good defender either uh but the Raptors need a third point guard pretty desperately uh that's the guy where you know if Davis or McCall could step into it it would be great but they probably can't they don't have a third point guard on the roster. I think he probably makes a roster by default. Although, as you could probably tell, I am not excited about it. I really hope Campaign doesn't hear this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I hope Pat McCaw and Campaign are not made well aware of this podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think that's all perfectly reasonable, though. Um, it, it's pretty stunning that Campaign is still getting chances in the NBA. Although, didn't he play? Did he play in the summer league and look really good? He had a really hot shooting percentage in the summer league and was decent, I believe, shooting the ball with the Cavaliers. But, you know, obviously, I just don't expect that shooting to carry over. And if it does, then good for him. He's an NBA player and I'll, you know, eat some crow. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think you and virtually the rest of the NBA world will be eating crow on that one. Next guy, Malcolm Miller. He's a guy that kind of reminds me of Alfonso McKinney in a way. Obviously, people saw him during the NBA Finals. He's perhaps not as good of an athlete as McKinney. Definitely actually isn't, but is a better shooter. Uh, I don't think he'll find his way onto the Raptors, but I do think he makes an NBA roster, and I think he's an NBA player uh, due to kind of the way the roster's set up. I don't think he makes it for the Raps, but I I do like his game. That's interesting. Yeah, and he was a guy that was – has he been on – he was with the team last year for sure, right? He, so he was on, a, I believe, a two-way contract last year. He injured himself last year at Summer League, uh, was released from that, and then was picked back up on a two-way, and then there was some things with uh, roster constraints. He basically was gifted a contract because the Raptors had to get up to 12 guys uh, after the Gasol trade. So, yeah, he was on the team last year uh, as a full roster member but obviously didn't see a ton of time. Right. Uh, so next guy uh, would be Duan Hernandez. Guy who I like a lot, older guy, sat out last year uh, due to an NCAA violation. Um, but, you know, a little bit older. They say he's flashing the ability to shoot uh, during practice. We'll see. Um, 
I think he's a guy who just kind of spends the year in the G League, expands his game a little bit offensively, defensively. He seems like he's solid, but nothing special. So uh, $500,000 guarantee for this year. I would expect him to make the team. So he is, was he not given the two-way contract yet? I was thinking he was on a two-way. No, he was not. He's on a full mm-hmm. contract, uh, $500,000 guaranteed. Uh, okay. Yeah, contract. that's significantly more money than you would be getting on a two-way. So good for him. Yeah, even if he's not making the team. Um, yeah, he's yeah. They use their mid-level exception to give him a third-year non-guaranteed. Obviously, if you use part of your mid-level, I think that at least signifies that the team's interested in you. So I think there's a, when I say I think he'll make the team. I think it's probably a ninety percent chance that he makes the team. Yeah, I probably should have said this. He was was it the 59th pick? Yes. Yeah, he was a guy that was drafted, uh, even if it was very late. So it's not like he's just uh, some fringe guy that was picked up. He was intentionally drafted by the Raptors. Uh, I can't believe I just said it like that. That makes it sound so insulting to every other (laughs) player. But uh, but he was I mean, so so he was a guy that the Raptors spent legitimate draft capital on, even if it was just 59. Exactly. Yeah. So we can go ahead and talk about Sagabe Kanate out of West Virginia. He's a guy who's just built like a brick shit house. They, he's just stocky as can be. There's no body fat. He's I I don't know the exact dimensions on him as far as height and weight, but just a uh, total brick house. He's only about six foot eight. Shown the ability, didn't shoot threes at all his first two years. Shot the three ball relatively well. I I don't see it as far as I don't know what he does. Uh, I don't know if he's good enough defensively to survive. So I think that's kind of what it will be. He'll, I don't think he'll ever be a particularly adept uh, offensive player. I just really, it's kind of that three-point game. Other than that, in college, he was kind of bullying guys down low, which I don't think will work in the NBA. So it comes down to, can he be an above-average defensive player to make an impact? I don't necessarily see it just based on his uh, skill set, but we'll see. Yeah, so he's one of those guys that I peg as like, Probably not going to remain in the NBA for too long, but I would expect him to go over to Europe and play in the highest levels and play well. I would not be surprised if he's on, you know, title winning teams in the ACB or at the very least uh, a starter on an ACB team for the next 10, 12 years. Maybe not right away, but he's clearly a good player. It's just a matter of whether he meets the basic thresholds to be an NBA player. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, so I would expect him to make a two-way. Sorry, uh, kind of to your last question, he's on Exhibit Ten, so I would expect him to be on a two-way next year. Okay, that's yeah, that's that's definitely worth noting. Uh, and then the last guy on the list is O'Shea Brissett out of Syracuse. Yeah, uh, I mean, stop me if you've heard this before, but incredible athlete needs to learn how to shoot the ball better. Uh, another Masai Ujiri kind of special. Uh, exhibit Ten, expect him to make a two-way. Uh, to be honest, I don't know enough about his game to yet predict if he'll make the roster. But just yeah, athlete, long guy. Uh, I believe six foot eight. Maybe I could have that wrong. Uh, Sounds right. Listen off the top of my head, but exhibit ten guy who I expect to be on a two way. Yeah, and he was a guy that so he, he played in Syracuse's zone defense. So it was a little tough to scout him, and there's not really a general consensus on what his defense looks like. The real problem was his uh, two point shooting. I think he may have shot under 40% from two-point range uh, throughout his college tenure, which was the main concern on him. But I think it's very clear he has the body and athleticism to be an NBA player if the skill can fill in. 
And, and you said he said you said he's probably going to be their other two way guy. Is that right? Yeah, he's the other guy signed on Exhibit Ten. I think that's one where um, I I would expect him to be the two way. Uh, if some people were rework their guarantees and perhaps if they want to do that, they could end up there. But right now, you know, it's the two exhibit 10 guys. They're the guys that are the kind of clubhouse leaders for two-way contracts. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so <laughs> before we recorded, I said I wanted to try to take it about 45 minutes and we pulled a herd of ears special and went a good hour 15. So I'm going to try to cut down on the questions at the end and let you let us both get out of here really let's just give a rundown how would you i guess just give me a prediction for the raptors next year what do you see the season looking like who do you see really stepping up and just give me a general picture of how you expect the regular season and playoffs to go more or less so uh, the raptors are i think there's two ways to look at this one is if they trade off the assets you know who knows what's going to happen i think kyle lowry can help a lot of teams uh, Masai Ujiri has almost traded Kyle Lowry twice at this point. So I, I don't think that it's something where he's beyond trading or anything like that in terms of importance to the franchise. Masai Ujiri showed everybody with DeMar DeRozan he's not afraid to send off whoever. Uh, but, you know, let's ex- assume they keep all their guys, and I think that's probably the most likely outcome, seeing as you just want a title, you have a little bit more leeway, and let's just run it back and see what happens is kind of the mindset I think – of what the Raptors are right now. And uh, what I think that is is kind of a ceiling of the three seed. They're definitely not going to be, uh, I mean, a a realistic ceiling, maybe a 90% uh, probable outcome of a ceiling of a three seed where they're not in that Philly and Milwaukee conversation, but there's no reason they couldn't be better than Boston, Brooklyn, uh, Miami, or Indiana. Uh, A floor of perhaps a seven seed where it's, if you know they just don't have enough shot creation, I could see them doing that. But they have enough kind of adults in the room and consistency that I don't really see them falling below a seven seed. So I think ceiling three seed, uh, floor seven seed. I what a goal I would have if I was you know realistically planning out this season would to be finished with home court advantage, where maybe Boston or Indiana has an incredible season, but you're able to kind of outperform the rest. So I would say. Four seed, five seed is probably what they'll be at the season. And, you know, it will be a first round matchup versus depending who it is. If it's Boston or Indiana, they probably would be the slight underdogs. And I think that's probably fair considering the lack of shot creation and how oh, that's more important for the postseason than it is the regular season. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the one question I thought of while sitting here listening to you, what it, so if the Raptors were to have a much better season than we're all expecting, where would that come from? And that's mostly in the playoffs. So if they're winning a playoff series and maybe even competitive in a second round series, what happens to get them there? I, you know, the obvious one would be the Pascal Siakam leap again, which maybe is expecting a lot from a guy, but who knows at this point he's made just, you know, it wasn't just a jump last year. He's made substantial improvements every single season in the NBA. So, uh, which I guess is only two, but he's made significant improvements since coming in. Uh, if he jumps into that kind of 15 ish overall, all NBA type talent, I think that's where you see the biggest improvement. The other thing is just, you know, Kyle Lowry, Marcus all Serge Ibaka there, that infrastructure is almost, you know, Spursian esque in the fact that 
there's just a lot of adults in the room, a lot of guys who have important players throughout their career. So they're, they're just able to kind of manufacture wins that way. I could see this team. I think this team is more likely to outperform their regular season expected win totals than they are the postseason. I think that postseason will be tough, but like if you told me this team won 56 games and it was just a parade of really good defense and manufacturing points, it wouldn't shock me. Uh, I would say, I mean, obviously that's a high outcome, but to me, I think that this team <coughs> can just manufacture enough points and just be perhaps a top, three defense in the NBA. Yeah, I think that's completely uh, a completely re- a reasonable, legitimate take to have right there. The number I probably would have had was more like 52, but 55 wins, not, I'm not that shocked. And I think the one thing that looking at the Raptors rotation, you might want to try to add in a midseason move if uh, Masai was going for a competitive team is some maybe just – if Norm Powell isn't really working out like you want, another bench shot creator. Obviously, Lou Williams is the epitome here, but if you get, if you could get someone to fill that Lou Will role off the bench, who's just a really big-time shot creator, I don't think there's any reason. Or, or, there's nothing stopping the Raptors from winning 55 games. They've absolutely got the players and the infrastructure to do it. I, I agree 100%. Yeah, uh, you know, I think if Masai does add someone, it would be one of those situations where the Raptors are, have been pretty meticulous about keeping their books clean for not only next season, but moving forward. I think if he were to add someone, he would be looking to add kind of a 25-year-old guy who's on a value contract that can come in and you know he's providing such value on his contract that you're looking to have him be a contributor for not only this year, but years moving forward. Now, I don't exactly know who that guy is right now. But I, I don't think there'll be buyers, but it's perhaps not ridiculous to see them try to go after something or uh, perhaps if they're not selling at the deadline, just, you know, throw in a couple second rounders as a token. Hey, we believe in you. Here's a guy who can kind of get some buckets off the bench that isn't really being valued. Well, so what about the idea of maybe trying to trade Norman Powell from a guy on an expiring contract that fills that same role? Yeah, uh, the only thing is perhaps the Raptors, I, you know, they have so much money in 2020. What are they going to do with it? I think mm-hmm. that they'd rather have the upside of Norman Powell. I think maybe the more realistic example would be, hey, let's trade Serge Ibaka to a team that really needs him in a three-way deal, and we get back kind of a younger guy who's also an impact player that maybe can, has a little bit more shot creation in this game. And I don't know who that is, but it's something where it's like you take Serge Ibaka – they get a valuable player uh, and the Raptors kind of get a guy who's kind of a mid-tier prospect that's maybe 24, 25. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense too. I I think that's about all I've got. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on, Mike. Uh, Go ahead and plug what you've got down there at Raptors Rapture, right? Yeah, raptorsrapture.com. Check us out. We're doing kind of, Right now, we're doing these uh, couple different series going on, kind of what are the odds and uh, what are reasonable goals, just kind of looking at next season, seeing the odds for different things that are coming out. Uh, you can follow me at, on Twitter at Mike Bo Sports as well. Uh, so, yeah, uh, looking forward to the season and hearing uh, all the team breakdowns on Heard It Here. Yeah, and I want to shout that out again. Definitely go follow Mike on Twitter at Mike Bo Sports. Very good content, high-level content. Plus, 
He's going to tweet out all the Raptors pieces he's got going out. So you'll be able to catch them all there if you don't uh, see them on the site. Uh, Mike, I really appreciate you coming on. Anything you want to say before you before we cut off? Uh, yeah, take the Raptors over. I would say that would be my one suggestion to everybody out there. Uh, you know, take the Raptors over and then bet against them in the playoffs. Hey, well, I'm going to go drop this $1.50 I got in my pocket on the Raptors <laughs> over right now. Y'all should, too. <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on, Mike. I had a lot of fun talking Raptors. You know it was a lot of fun because we went way too long. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I'll talk to you later, man. Uh, talk to you later. Uh, peace.